In the internet economy of information, the things that get our attention are the brightest and the weirdest because the internet is essentially a jungle and only the brightest colors and flowers and combinations and patterns get our visual attention. But when we make choices as to how to express ourselves, we tend to be relatively conservative. So the internet rewards very, very flashy, bright things, but we still tend to be quite conservative in the choices that we make as consumers individually. On this week's show, we consider the rise and hope for the fall of the listicle, ask if in-house really is progress, and consider the return of Daniel Roth, all while continuing the Watch Some Wonders tour with the likes of IWC, Roger Dubois, Vacheron Constantine, and my personal favourite, MicroFundy details are available upon the quest, Elanga and Zona, all in the company of our favourite creative director, Sylvain. Enjoy the show! Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. We have four people on the show today. I suspect, though, it's only really going to count as three and a half because Ariel is so horrifically jet-lagged. But what it does mean, Ariel, is we get to play A Blog to Watch Watches Watches. So get your movie recommendations ready, Ariel. You can. Ha- I'll give you some extended time to think about it. Can I just guess the Seiko price? <laughs> <laughs> Were there any Seikos featured in any of the movies? <laughs> No, I I saw a lot of Attenborough, okay? So a lot of nature stuff, not a lot of watches in there. So G-Shock heavy. Maybe. I uh what did I see? Oh, you know what I saw? I saw that that movie from the UK about a guy and his fake robot like called like Charles and <laughs> no, Brian and Charles. Okay, I think you probably might have been imbibing something on the airplane. No, that was <laughs> that that was a movie. It was it was about a guy who makes a robot, which he doesn't really make a robot, but he has a robot friend, and there's got to be a couple of digital watches in there for sure. Okay, okay, Sylvan, welcome back to the show. What's the last film you watched at the cinema? Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, I haven't been to the cinema in probably a year. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, that's right. You, you don't have a television, no, do you? No, I don't either. You know that, and you keep asking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you mean... He hires people to play performances outside of his window. <laughs> no, I work. <laughs> the life of a Breitling creative director, he just clicks his fingers and the artisans Neighbors, dance for me! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't need a TV either. David, last television box set you binged. I don't have a television either. Been oh, to the come movies. I've been to the movies, but I go there and I don't remember what I watched. So I have, <laughs> I have no idea. It just blacks me out. So I guess it's just I no clue whatsoever. <laughs> I think this means I'm shelving a blog to watches watches television podcast mm. I'm planning because it's going to be a short podcast. <laughs> it'll make a change. I can, okay, I'll say this. I've been watching uh-huh. The Last of Us, and it really bothers oh, okay. me that the the watch which is so prominently featured is such an ugly watch it's from the video game as well i understand uh-huh. but like usually these days when they put a, a like a an important watch in a movie or video game they make sure it's nice but once in a while they still have one which is just so generic and blasé it's just such a waste why last of us uh, remind us what the watch is. It's just some generic field-ish military oh, right, watch. Okay. Couldn't they just break into any AD and just get a really nice, like, gem set Rolex or something like that? I always wonder on these shows, why aren't these people just, like, decked out in gold for the hell of it? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I would be eyes out. Like, girl are rocking six day dates on one arm, basically. <laughs> we have a busy show ahead. Let's launch in... 
while he's still vaguely awake. I, I, I feel that Ariel's perked up speaking about television and The Last of Us. So let's get while he's going and we'll speak about your recent Monday article. Ariel's thoughts, beware of those who tell you how to collect watches. So Ariel, what's your top 10 reasons of how people tell you how to collect watches? Wow. Okay, <laughs> I've written a lot of articles like this and the reason I keep writing them is the blog to watch team reminds me that the community needs to hear this. So for more than 10 years now, every once in a while, I write something that says, Hey everyone, stop letting other people tell you what to buy. There's no way of becoming a watch collector. There's no one set to own. There's no things that are good or bad. It's not about that. It's about buying what you like. And the reason I think I have to do it is because apparently there's so much quote unquote media out there, which are basically just call them influencers or salespeople by another name, trying to say, hey, people, we understand watches are a thing. Listen to my advice and buy the things I tell you, which I mean, I, I'm not inherently against people taking shortcuts, but that's not going to make you happy as a watch collector. So based upon the advice of members of the blog to watch team, Regarding a lot of experiences that people in the community have, I once again tried to respond to a lot of the conversations happening on YouTube, on Instagram by people who are literally telling people like to collect watches, own this list of 10, which is not watch collecting. That's not how you get pleasure from it. That's a bad approach. So pretty well commented article. And uh, I think it's worth a read, especially for those novice enthusiasts out there. So I'm liking the use of the word listicle, a list and an article. Um, is I've not actually, I don't think I've ever seen that word before. Have you coined this word? No. Or have you? No. 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 This is from this is from elsewhere in the internet where lists abound for other things and other topics. I, I find it difficult to ask about this topic because I just feel this inner urge to ask for lists of things. I don't know. Maybe I need counselling. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I need uh, because my inner urge is, yeah, you've you've written a list of the top five. I want to know what your top five is. I don't know if it's because I want to buy the top five that somebody recommends. I'm not sure I'm being influenced. I just like to know what people's top five is. I accept that a lot of them are just trying to sell me stuff. But David, your thoughts on this without 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 making a list. Give us some thoughts. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> give, I, us, give us random thoughts, randomized, so that in no way, shape, or form they can be assumed to be a list of thoughts about this article. Yeah, I, I like the concept of list in the sense that it gives you, you know, you, you can pick the brain of the writer a little bit and, and say, okay, these are, maybe I will find one that I like. But as Ariel said, you know, to buy these top 10 and then you're a good collector or it's the one watch that your collection needs, that's all useless. I think it's... Uh, a lot of the times this is just a spec sheet game uh you know like oh this tutor is so perfect for like these five reasons and whatever but we rarely say and these people rarely say and these outlets rarely say that these are the five reasons why this watch is fun and, and that's because you know the definition of fun is, is different from one person to another but at the same time i think we, we could help and actually on a block to watch i think uh, basically all of us in the team do it in our own way to say this is why watch collecting is fun, and this is why this $99 G-Shock is fun, or why this gem set Casio is fun, or why this uh, gem set Yachtmaster is fun. It's, it's not just about 
what goes into the watch or, or the specs or whatever. And, and these lists rarely list watches uh, based on how much fun they are to own and to wear on a daily basis. And that's what I care about. And that is what makes watches interesting, right? I, I don't think that because what happens is a lot of the times people are looking for a safe way to spend their hard-earned money and they try and justify these things by objective you know uh, aspects which is totally understandable but at the same time there's so much more to having the watch that you like than to just justify it by the specs because when you look down on your wrist you will be like oh i'm so happy i got the whatever movement with the whatever frequency you don't even see that and you don't know that so that that wears off really surprisingly quickly and the rest stays and if the rest is exciting then you're in good hands and that's what i care about when making lists or when making articles i gotta say you know if you looked at something similar for fashion a lot of these articles would be the equivalent of hey what clothing do i need as a guy and it's like, well, get a blue blazer and some slacks and some black shoes and brown shoes and a white shirt and a couple of other things. And boom, you have a complete wardrobe. You just sort of like blend in, right? Like no one's going to say you don't look appropriate here, but no one's going to remember you were there. No one's going to notice you. And if you're looking to express yourself or stand out at all which is mainly what your people are trying to do when they own expensive watches. Getting that stuff is just not going to make you happy. That's why my main dress code is overalls. Sylvan? Mm. On, the, on the professional side, uh, being a creative, having a creative job, I, I get these questions a lot. Oh, what do you think? Should I buy this? Should I buy that? What's your opinion on that watch? Blah, blah, blah. I always do like David and Ariel and yourself trying to explain people and and this is how i sum it up i say the most inspiring people are the ones making good decisions there is not a right and wrong answer especially for me as a creative i could draw a week thousands of watches and there is not a right and wrong answer uh, at the end of the day it, the question is, does this watch moves you or not? And if you buy it trying to please others, I think you, you will quickly regret that. Uh, so I think to, to me, but, but when I say to people, uh, don't listen, don't buy any advice, usually they don't get it. So, so I try to, to go the most inspiring way saying, if you want to be an inspiring person, Make your own decision. Take the risk, and people will actually notice that, that you that you expressed yourself, and and ultimately, this is the effect you want to have. This is how you want to impact your surroundings, just by making your own decision. To what extent, though, is the world of watch design a question for everybody? Work the same way as car design. You see the concept car and everybody wows at it and going, oh yeah, I really, like the professionals, if you like, yeah, really wish they would produce that. But then that concept model that everyone's in love with hits the reality of what people actually want and it gets toned down and the edges get taken off of it and it gets bigger or smaller, wider or lower or fatter or whatever it is, the tires are smaller. It becomes more practical. How does that work with watches in the sense that there is what people actually want to buy, which isn't necessarily the same things that the four of us as people who are deep into this would buy or see as, yeah, that's a good watch. I always said to my guys, because I have 
uh, every month one guy in my team coming being very frustrated and say oh, I want to achieve this and we can't do it and I always tell them look guys we can't bend the laws of physics so at the end of the day a good designer even if you have very small margin of maneuver you have to do it in the best of your abilities I mean to what extent do you design first and foremost for yourself Sylvan and secondly for what you're going to actually see on uh, in the stores that the public are going to want to buy. Uh, uh, at what point does your dream design actually have to deal with the reality of what's going to sell? In the second stage, the, the first stage we usually, as you said, draw whatever we, we'd love to have. And in the second stage, we have to do what is called retro engineering. So this is where you bring uh, product development guys, uh, movement development suppliers and everything. And then we have to cope with their production rules and, and, and yeah, set of constraints in order to make the product feasible. And the second rule that is very hard to apply in French, we call it repetability. It means how you can repeat a certain level of, of quality mm. over a few hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of pieces. And, and that is very hard because, as we all know, making one turbine watch by hand that you took a year to build is hard, of course, but it's feasible if you have the time and the resources to do that. Now, if you want to offer the highest level of quality on an industrial level, this is actually in my mind, much harder because you have to have clever designers and, and development guys that can cope with the, the rules required to do that. Let me chime in here. I think it's an important question to ask, but what I have found, and this is not just watches and it's also cars, is that the average consumer is far less open-minded and adventurous, adventurous and willing to try new things as maybe they even think there are. The bottom line is that Time and time again, people who make products find that consumers tend to be conservative. Why do you think that the industry made you know so many just black dialed watches for so long? Um, because that's what would sell. And in the internet economy of information, we're presented with this sort of strange paradox. The things that get our attention are the brightest and the weirdest because the internet is essentially a jungle and only the brightest colors and flowers and combinations and patterns get our visual attention. But when we make choices as to how to express ourselves, we still tend to be relatively conservative. So the internet and today's social media economy rewards very, very flashy, bright things because we're assaulted with information. But we still tend to be quite conservative in the choices that we make as consumers individually. And I think that that accounts for a lot of what you see because I think that brands would make wilder stuff if it was true that consumers jumped on it more readily. It tends to be that a new product can take many years to become normalized such that it can gain the status of being conservative. The Royal Oak was relatively radical when it came out, and you wouldn't have had someone who was conserved wearing it. Today, no one looks at a Royal Oak and says, wow, that is a such a, a crazy new design. Like, it's, it's out there. It's known. And is there anything out there at the moment that you think is in the early stages of that? It is the far out thing that is still to be normalized whether that maybe like a, a kind of i don't know ur work rotary hands or you know 
or a mystery dial it is or something that's up and coming if you like the funny thing is that what needs to be well not it doesn't need to be but what will be normalized is is one of the most conservative things ever it's small round watches in gold probably uh, i think that those we'll, we'll be seeing a lot more of those maybe even like coated or plated or something like that at cheaper price points and then and then uh, you know it's gonna it's gonna rise in the next few years for sure and you know right now if you wear like a 35 36 millimeter gold watch that is thin and round and simple on a leather strap how many guys do you see out there on a daily basis rocking a watch like that i don't see none of them anywhere i travel or wherever i live it never ever happens and i think you know it's going to take up a considerable fraction or a considerable size of the market within the next few years uh, and it's one of the most conservative things and yet it is not normalized in our current time and maybe that will be like cheaper vintage watches or something like that that will fill this void or something like that but also new watches and that's gonna happen in, in the next few years i don't think it's going to be like floating hands and crazy overwork designs and whatever Th those will never be uh, standardized because you, you for something to be standardized you'd need to see them You'd need to sell them by the bucket loads, like hundreds of thousands for you to encounter them on a daily basis, frequently enough for that to, for one to think that, oh yeah, this is a new trend now. That's that's not going to happen with something like that, I don't think. So, so Van, as a designer, is there any sort of golden rule that you would use to, not to stop you wasting time, because it's always good to sit down and just dream and draw exactly what you want, but is there some sort of rule you would always have in the back of your mind to say, yeah, it's all very well me spending hours designing this, but we can't build this. So actually, I need to make sure it's tweaked in a particular way so that it's more likely to actually see an authorised dealer at some point. No, no, no. There are rules indeed to, to save time and to avoid ending up in, in quagmire. Uh, because like, like Ariel explained previously, drawing is like a sandbox. You can keep drawing for months, years, and it's a very vicious discipline because you will never finish. And Leonardo da Vinci even said, there is not finished art, there is only abandoned art. And, that, and, and that's what he came at the end of his life when he realized, my God, I can spend five years painting a roof in a church and it's not finished. And you could see these guys because they x-rayed the paintings. They had one centimeter of paint on the canvas because they kept retouching for years and months and years and, and they would never let it go. For us, industrial designers, we have uh, industrial deadlines to, to cope with because these are linked to production capabilities and, and marketing budgets and communication launch plan and everything. So it is extremely important to deliver in time. So in order to do that, I think the design team, just like a doctor, when you want to solve a problem or heal somebody, you need to make a precise diagnostic of what's the, what's the request, what's the goal, what do we try to achieve here? So I always encourage my guys to ask a maximum of questions in the early phase to make sure everyone is aligned and make sure we all want to achieve the same goal. So it could be, we want to develop the esteem of the brand. So we want to go in a very traditional direction or quite the opposite. We want to do a step aside and, and be more modern, more graphic, or we want to be very technical, but it's very important to have some sort of a guideline all along the creative process 
to, to make sure you don't get lost. So to me, that's the main rule, and it's probably a modus operandi sort of rule. And then when it comes to solving problems, good designers with experience have, I mean, it would take hours to explain, but uh, once you have good knowledge in proportions, colorimetry, finishings, proportions, ergonomics, you can use all these disciplines to trick the eye. So, so I could make you a blue look like a green if I put it next to a yellow, or I could make your watch look much smaller than it is, much bigger than it seems. You, we have in the arsenal of a designer, you have many, many different tricks to, to bend things, which is why sometimes just uh, assessing a watch by looking at its dimensions or its specs on paper won't help you. Thank you, gentlemen, for engaging in that. You can go and check out Ariel's article at A Blog to Watch, only published on Monday and already has a significant number of comments. So do get stuck into that. Also, what is up and coming is our Discord channel. So go and search out the show notes for links to the Discord channel or have a look at the A Blog to Watch Instagram account. Join that because that is where there is going to be the ability in future weeks to do live chats and ask me anything chats with the various editors and guests. Yeah, we're doing the first one this week on Discord. I don't even know how to find this stuff out <laughs> exactly. I'm ex- I, well, We like Discord, but apparently you find the blog to watch. Channel. I'm just trying to talk to other people out there that also are new to this type of thing. I guess we want to perfect these a little bit before we start inviting everyone there, but we're trying something yes. new. Basically, it'll be like a podcast, but not a podcast. Yeah, I have no idea how it's going to work, but we shall see and it will be hopefully a bit of a mainstay for our Watches and Wonders coverage, which leads us neatly on to Watches and Wonders. We've done a bit of a tour over the last few weeks and we're going to whiz round a number of brands in the kind of lower hall. We're going to start off with the Noisy Neighbours because this year they have sat Roger Dubuis next to who last year had a volcano going off every 15 minutes or whatever it was and they have sat them next to the very elegant because last year they were next to the press booth where we tried to record and couldn't because of the noise this year they're next to the very elegant parmigiani so that could be an interesting clash of cultures between those particular two Roger Dubuis, parmigiani which booth are you going to first of those two? Oh well hmm you know, to be honest, it's, it's funny because the management has changed, but I, I've had some really fun times with Parmigiani of all the brands. <laughs> yeah. Like you wouldn't believe, yep. it, which was just a lot of fun, but it, it is a very, very elegant and a very well-mannered and a very serious brand. Roger Juby, I think, has lost some of some of the some of the traction. Maybe that's just because I'm not a Bitcoin millionaire, just going to their, um, you know, whatever <laughs> events. But it's just such an old brand at the moment. It, it used to have this this uh, this blossom of creativity with all these different crazy watches the monegas and some of those more vintage styled pieces and I, i'm not saying i liked all of them but at least it, it was fun it was more diverse and at the moment i'm really not sure wh- wh- what is the direction i think it's just pumping out all these like lamborghini themed watches and it's, it's just an odd, odd, odd place to be right now and i i don't see i see the energy in the booth and i see the energy is somewhere deep within the brand, but somehow it just doesn't doesn't connect for me. While on the other hand, Parmigiani has been on on a roll with Guido Terreni uh, and a few others joining 
and just taking it to the next level now. And and again, like 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 Roger Dewey, Parmigiani really needed direction and uh, and some you know tough measures and and a strong navigator. And now it's happening, and it's cool to see because Parmigiani has so much within its uh, vertically integrated manufacturing system that allows them to get creative and deliver both in terms of uh, creativity and quality. And and for that reason, I look forward to seeing them this year at Watches and Wonders. So Van, if you manage to sneak in under the cover of some other organization into Watches and Wonders, or if you just have to pony up 70 euros to go yourself on the public day on Saturday, which of the booths of the following are you going to first? Roger Dubuis, Parmigiani, Elang and Zona, IWC, Montblanc, or Vacheron Constantin. Where are you heading to first out of that bunch? Well, personally, I'm a big love of, of traditional watchmaking and then craftsmanship and good movement constructions and, and yeah, long legacy for brands. So the ones that speak the more to my heart are probably Lange, Vacheron, Parmigiani, and on the other side, for example, I agree with David. Uh, I wish Roger Dubuis would get back in the archives a little, a little bit too. They've done some incredible stuff in the past, and and and, uh, and I find it it lost some of its flair. But uh, yeah, so for me, top pick Vacheron Lange uh, and Parmigiani for sure. Ariel, what is the history of Roger Dubuis? Because I think for most people, we just know them as this recently very loud as david says it's all lamborghinis and fancy skeletons and big watches and materials etc but they do have this back catalog so where does that come from what's the history of the brand it's a history that's wow it's difficult to talk (laughs) about it because there's so much that went on from a business perspective right it's not necessarily the watches i mean there was a guy you know roger dubuis and he sold it, and then that brand got sold to someone else. There was a big lawsuit involved between uh, some of the new owners and the subsidiary in the United States, or what was, or the distributor. I'm sorry, the distributor that set a lot of precedent. So it's a really interesting history. The watches themselves in the in the late '90s were, you know, part of sort of this Frank Muller generation where you had this sort of neoclassic. So sort of classic designs, but larger sizes, real emphasis on complications that was really in at the time. The problem was that a lot of these watches didn't work very well. And the movements they had broke a lot and they were beautiful, but they broke a lot. And part of what had to happen when Richemont purchased Roger Dubuis was actually spend a lot of years slowing everything down and making it work. So a lot of the movements, a lot of things from the history is gone because it never actually worked. That's not an issue anymore. Uh, the, the watches do work very well, but you can see as a result, the catalog of actually actual movements they've had has gotten pretty small. So they make a lot of the same focusing on the outside and stuff like that. So I think we'd all really like to see a return to all that stuff, but it wouldn't be an easy pivot for the company because they'd have to essentially make new movements, do a bunch of stuff. Right now, they I think they try to position themselves as sort of an alternative to maybe a Richard meal. They don't quite have the same type of brand, but I think that brands like, like Roger Dubuis were anticipating there being sort of this futuristic luxury watch buyer, which didn't get as popular as they thought. So then they thought that it would be something a little bit different. And so I think that you have brands like that. They, they know they're not classic, right? They know that. They're like, we're not a classic watch brand. But what they are 
isn't clear because I don't think consumers know what they want in a modern watch brand. So uh, it's not the only brand which is in this sort of state of like, we're contemporary, but other than that, we don't know what to say. It's an odd one. I agree. Other brands in that kind of sector, we've spoken to Roger DeBuy and Parmigiani, is Elang and Zona. I just feel that Elang and Zona have kind of vanished. I yeah, they just feel like they've been very, very quiet. They went through a load of releases for their anniversary and then it just seems to have, I feel, disappeared a little bit from the public consciousness as this like massive top-end brand. Do you agree? Do we think ALS will have a big year? Do they need a big Watches and Wonders? I think they've been quiet for sure. Um, I think this is a brand that typically tends to sell pretty well like they had a number of very strong years where they gained a lot of demand i think that their their prices are still considered to be at least uh fair when you look at it next to some of the competition like patek philippe or or something like that so i think that again they've they've been intentionally quiet they've never been a particularly loud brand but german brands especially during the pandemic i mean just you know Nomos may be the exception because they still did a little bit of stuff, but that's because their marketing decision-making is in Berlin, not in Glashütte. But like everything we know from Glashütte, I mean, that entire... They still made watches, but that entire yeah. <laughs> city just went totally quiet. So right. I, I, I think this is just them being... Just doing their thing. Just like, okay, we make a few thousand watches a year. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to not communicate for a while. And they can get away with that for, for a while. Not forever, but for a while. On, on my end, I think we may, because the past few years, we've seen Longe building, especially the Odysseus collection. And we may have a, a distorted vision of the brand, like if Longe had to communicate all the time, but they just created a brand new collection in their portfolio. And if you look at the complete history of the brand, this is exceptionally unusual. It's actually something that a few watch collectors will, will have the privilege to, to experience. Longe making new collections in their lifetimes. And now because we are right after this phase, we ex probably expect them to keep uh, communicating. But to me, Longe is a very silent brand. I don't remember who said it, but it was a great quote. It's Longe's business at the front and party at the back. That's the philosophy of the brand. <laughs> Uh, and, and by definition, it's a very silent brand. And I think that's what collectors like about them. They speak only when they have something to say. Uh, and they could stay silent for a year, but you don't have to worry because when they will eventually speak, you know it's going to be good. And, and and I think that's just their trademark in the industry. And I think uh, William Schmidt is, is handling this brand in a re remarkable manner. So kudos to the, the whole team involved. All I would add is that I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a high probability that they are at peak production and it's extremely difficult to find people who would want to move to Glossute and finish movement bridges on a long and not because it's a bad job, but it's because a difficult proposition. You know, it, I think they are capped by, by workforce and, you know, you you can, you can push this uh, communication machine to its limit and just, you know, uh, put long air into everyone's faces and then demand will go through the roof and then you will not be able to deliver. So I think they are, they've reached their capacity these days. And as long as you can maintain that and hover at that level very smartly without fading into uh, irrelevance, then sure, I think this can just, just go on very smoothly, very quietly. 
and there's really no pressure. I don't think that there are too many people out there who are like biting their nails, nails and just like, oh, when is the next Lange coming up? Like, like Simon said, it's really rare to see a new collection as opposed to other brands that just pump new stuff out. And they have their own reasons. Like, you know, like high volume brands, of course, operate totally differently, but others, and again, these are probably mature watch uh, lovers and watch, watch enthusiasts and collectors who go to Lange, they expect this sort of stability. So again, there's really no reason. You can you can aspire for a Lange, you can probably go out and, and get one in a reasonably timely manner, and then that's it. Uh, but they cannot double production from one day to the other or even one year to the next. And so there's, there's a reason. I think that's the reason why they are uh, so quiet these days. IWC, Ariel, you were in London with the good folk of IWC. I think all I can ask you is, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, I I can say that the watch itself has nothing to do with London. It just happened to be launched there. Um, This is a watch that we will be able to show at Watches and Wonders. It's an interesting story of a product that IWC took a number of years to get right and that will make a little bit more sense when the story comes out so i think what i learned there that i knew but i wasn't really entirely clear was what iwc has become and it has become a design focused brand you have a ceo who is an architect and a design lover he's he's quite fanatical about an attention to detail and for him design is first and foremost uh, sport watch history that's second and i think that under his leadership the products are going to get more and more visually attractive and i think that that's something that we've seen iwc watches under chris granger's you know stewardship have gotten very pretty looking maybe not wildly original but prettier and prettier looking and i think that that's a good thing for the brand and and they'll be able to build on from that so we'll see more on march 27th okay now vacheron constantin probably had well we'd certainly been it if it was okay to make a list, you would put the Vacheron 222 from last year on that list of watches that you enjoyed most at the show. Do we think Vacheron are then due to step up further, or do we think this is now their off year, their quiet year, their stick-to-the-knitting year? They almost always have something nice. I mean, I don't remember a situation where there was nothing i mean like they tend to always have at least one really nice thing it might be crazy expensive it might might be affordable but i'd say that that's a brand that really seems to care about not letting people down like they like they're 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 they always get like a solid b at the show a minimum now so mont blanc are a brand that are there for watches but are known probably more so for other products you're a designer who has worked in the watch industry or still working in the watch industry but has also worked in other industries how easy is it to design do you think within mont blanc a watch when they are better known for other products like to what extent does the watch designing have to take account of the non-watch products that they are actually known for do you think well, I, I have a very hard point of view on this, so, so I'm going to go ahead. <laughs> I apologize in okay. advance Come for uh, every people that could, that could uh, hurt. But t- to me, a brand can expand 
into different areas when these areas are actually less complex than what they initially did. By that I mean, if you are a BMW and you want to make a bicycle, that I can understand because I assume you're making uh, fancy cars and you could probably get over with doing a bicycle. If you do the opposite, if, if you are doing bags and fountain pens and from one day to another you wake up and you say, oh, by the way, now I'm able to, to master traditional watchmaking to the highest level. I'm not saying you can't do it because they went to to deep extent to buy Minerva and to acquire a manufacturer and, and they pumped a lot of resources into doing it the right way. I just think it will take decades before people acknowledge Montblanc as a proper watchmaker. And it's the same challenges I feel that brands like Hermès have to deal with and probably Chanel and Dior. And to a lesser extent, maybe Bulgari is the challenge uh, Fabrizio and Antoine have on, on that hand. But... They put so much effort and emphasis on that with eight world records in a year. And at the same time, jewelry is much closer to watchmaking than, for example, making leather goods is to watchmaking, which they have nothing in common except a strap, maybe. So, yeah. So would you suspect that actually the brand they should be promoting should be Minerva? Oh, yes. Sure. Anytime. Anytime. I would not never relabel the brand. Yeah. I think uh, Montblanc uh, should be credited for being, you know, one of those brands that people tend to migrate to uh, when they are buying their first watch. You know, the 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 Star Legacy and some of the other models that they have produced uh, over time, the eighteen fifty eight. I think they have created some attractive watches that have found their ways onto the rest of customers across a number of uh, greater markets. And again, I think I think that is attached, that notion is attached to the name Montblanc. And for that reason, sure, it's not like an advanced high watchmaking brand or something that has, you know, big legacy there. But at the same time, it's part of a group that has so much know-how that it can just uh, delegate or just relegate onto uh, or just hand over to Montblanc and say, hey, guys, you can use this movement manufacturer and you can use this case maker, etc. So I think what it boils down to is design. I think that is a direction because you can have you can lean on all these manufacturing capacities within the Richmond group and say, OK, we are for sure you can make a decent case, etc. But what has been missing from the brand from time to time was was a clear cut direction from somebody who, like Simon said, had proper experience in the world of watches and not in the world of accessories and, and other items which are you know which is just a, an art to its to its own to itself so yeah i think i think that's the bottleneck and uh, sometimes they get you know things right and sometimes they are they seem to be on a roll and it's all heating up and then the next year it's just goes ah and now we are on this downward spiral at the moment for for Montblanc a little bit but we'll see where where it takes us this year Montblanc is a brand that i really adore in terms of the brand itself and a lot of the watches they've made over the past uh, 20, 25 years, I think there's a lot of hits and misses, but a lot of hits. You don't have to have only hits. They've made a lot of watches. Right now, it is in a very weak position. My guess is that for whatever reason, Richemont doesn't want Montblanc stepping on the toes of the other brands. And so Montblanc has all the stuff it could be doing and has done, but it seems to be limited right now. The brand isn't marketing in any way, which is like if Cartier stopped or Tiffany and company stopped. Like 
Mont Blanc is a large multi-category brand that sells a bunch of stuff. Yet, if you're like in the United States, like I haven't seen a Mont Blanc ad here in a long, long time. It is a brand that is in some type of strange hibernation mode where like parts of it are operating, but other parts of it are not operating. We have all noticed that. None of us can explain why. It's a very strange situation, but there are some absolute gems there. So love the brand, love some of the things they've done, completely couldn't explain what their current strategy is in any way. 2023 marks 25 years of Urwerk, a brand from Baumgartner and Fry with the ambition to challenge auteur lingerie with new ideas and modern technologies, making art that tells time. In 2015, Urwerk released their first ladies' watch, the UR106 Lotus. Although it clearly captures the brand's familiar aesthetic, the case, movement and dial are all new to this award-winning watch. The shape of the satellite hours and carousel creates a floral feel to the symmetrical dial, with a moon phase indicator in the centre just above the sweeping minute scale. For more, search for Urwerk at blogtowatch.com or follow at Urwerk Geneva on Instagram. Now, Ariel, you were in a bit of a UK tour. There's a new superlative episode out with Roger Smith and Mike France with their alliance of British watch and clock makers hats on, as well as Christopher Ward unveiling a bel canto that is actually a limited edition collaboration. What did you make of Mike and Roger as a team when you met with them? That's a great question. The only new watches I saw when I was there I couldn't talk about, which was the IWC. So uh, I did meet with a lot of these people, didn't get a chance to see a lot of new watches. But I have you know, been seeing what's coming out of, of England, and they have this uh, alliance of British uh, watch and clockmakers. This is a very interesting organization that has pretty much all the companies in the UK. And I actually recommend going to the website just to see who they are. Bremont is the one that hasn't been part of them. They've been invited. I don't know why that's an internal conversation they have, but Bremont is eligible. I don't know. Just, just so you know, <laughs> they've been invited. They just <laughs> don't want to be part of it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, but it, they're, they're really creating organization where the, I, I would love for there to be something similar in the United States because there's a similar revival of watchmaking in the United States. And there's a little bit more craftsman style brands in the UK. I think Roger Smith would be the perfect example because he does this stuff by hand. But I think what the United States has, which the UK doesn't have, is some really massive companies in the mix. You know, I'm talking about the Fossil Group and Timex and Shinola, Movado. I mean, these are, you know, these are big companies involved in watchmaking. So um, the US might actually want to think about having some type of an organization like that. Um, but I think they're doing a great job. And from an overall marketing perspective, um, they're cr trying to create some personality behind what it means to be a British watch or clockmaker, as opposed to just a, a luxury one or a European one uh, or a mechanical one or something like that. Yeah. And did you get a hands on with the bell canto at all? I did. I did. It's it's a great watch. It's it's titanium. It's well machined. It's very lightweight. It's basically a contemporary execution of the the most simple kind of repeating musical watch you could have. Uh, it's a striker. Uh, so it's not a repeater. 
And every hour on the hour, it makes the same identical noise, which is lovely and charming. It only gets more complicated from there. And so they did a great job of saying, okay, you like chiming watches? Cool. Most of them are too expensive. We know. We're going to go ahead and make a relatively affordable, you know, entry-level model. Nivrel, a German watchmaker, several years ago had a very similar watch with, I mean, a different movement, but it was uh, an hour striker. Cost a little bit more, but not too much more. It was still very well-priced for what it was. Didn't sell that well because, again, no one really knew what it was or that you could have a, a chiming watch for for that low so this is you know this is less than four thousand dollars so it's even more aggressively priced i think it's great and um i think our strikers and sim and related movements are a lot of fun because they just sort of you know we had a whole conversation with me and mike france about this uh you know just recently but it's 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 passively there to get attention like a minute repeater you have to actively do something and you're kind of a jerk for doing it because you never would do it but a striker is just like oh did your watch just ding oh yes what is that it's a great for it's great for conversation in that way so van the, the alliance is very much about sharing i do know that there are brands there that will you know there are a lot of smaller brands that will share contacts oh. and suppliers you mean like breitling and tudor yeah. So to what extent? Yeah. Yes. So to what extent? Uh, yeah. It's maybe a bit of a bigger scale. The whole Breitling Tudor. Can you see all of these kind of things? I have a, a strong opinion on that matter in general. I think uh, I find it very sad that for some reasons that I can't explain, everybody decided overnight to to become fully manufacturer. I, I regret and I miss the time where the, the watchmaking industry was some sort of a galaxy of suppliers and, and you had dial makers, movement makers, part makers. It was very rich and you could make very exotic association using that galaxy. Now that everybody bought their suppliers, their respective suppliers, uh, it, it sort of built some walls in the industry where, uh, yes, you have ownership of your own destiny because it's you building your own thing. But ultimately, I think that the, the end customer does not necessarily benefit from it because everybody is now surprised. Oh, but why are the watches so expensive these days? Well, there is a good reason for it because everybody pumped 40, 50, 100 mil in their own manufacturer five years ago, and now we have to pay for it. <laughs> so overall, I'm all about uh, these horological societies uh, in the UK, in, in Switzerland, in Germany. Uh, it could even be... Um, international of course where people get together share not only knowledge but suppliers and 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 share their common efforts to bring a better product because if brands fight too much with each other at the end let's not forget a watch mechanical watch is completely useless and the goal is, is to please end customers and and we, the watchmaking industry, should stay relevant for the customers because if all of a sudden, because we fight too much, the products become not innovative enough, too expensive, why the client should care? When you can get a nice car, get a nice trip, buy a fancy leather bag, some amazing sneakers, or whatever. So, yeah, that's my take on it. Do, do we think it's a phase? Do we think that... I hope so. The big industries have bought in the suppliers, but give it five or 10 years, you'll either get 
mom and pop setting up a new screw maker or the big conglomerates will start divesting themselves of the overhead which is vertical integration i think we'll have big groups who own like two-thirds of the industry and and it's like oil and waters they don't tend to mix so on the top you would have all the big conglomerates completely closed very tight airproof to the rest of the world where they make their own piece big quantities high quality and competitive pricing and on the bottom you will have this galaxy of suppliers that are not willing to bend the knee so to speak and then and i know many i know some dial makers hand makers even if you give them you know hundreds of millions it would not sell and then when you ask them they say well what would i do with your money you know <laughs> i'm fine what i what i want is to have friends and then keep perfecting my craft and and so these guys are not willing to sell what they want is to perfect their craft because it, it's a, it's a journey for them. It's not a job anymore. And and these suppliers actually all work with the independents, most of them with all the independents. And so you will have that part of the industry. I've never seen so many independent brands coming out. We could also talk about Daniel Rhodes, for example. But yes, I see the industry yep. becoming sort of black and white. In the not future. very independent, right, Sylvan? No, 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 it's not. But nonetheless, <laughs> it shows. It, to me, Daniel Rhodes is very interesting because, I yes, it's not independent. It's owned by LVMH. But it shows that even the big groups clearly acknowledged the, the passion and, and the fire series around independence and this high-end uh, exotic craftsmanship. Talk to us then, Ariel, about Daniel Roth. You've written an article about the brand returning under LVMH. You are quite close to LVMH and you've been out there a number of times. Indeed, you're returning shortly. Explain how this fits into the La Fabrique de Tompe. Uh, manufacturer? I didn't see this coming. I mean, we knew that they had control of the Daniel Roth brand, so that's not new information. That they wanted to make more watches. You know, every single time they have to have a new case, a new movement. It's just a lot of money. They would rather make more of a diff of, of, of a watch they already make than something new. So I think that what Sylvan said was correct, that there's this fascination with brand right now. And they love having all these different flavors. They like to have uh, people following the brand. I think a big part of it is that there's all these pre-owned watches on the market right now. And I think that there's this idea they have where the new ones will kind of look like the old ones. And then maybe they've bought up a bunch of them and they're going to sell the new and the old. I, I, I think LVMH right now is in undergoing a lot of experimentation. I don't think that the Daniel Roth concept is necessarily a replica of other brands they have, it would be incorrect to say like, oh, they're going to model it after Zenith or, or or something like that. We also know that LVMH doesn't quite have a brand like that. Think about a competitor to a Patek Philippe or a Longay or a Breguet or a Vacheron. LVMH doesn't quite have a classic style Haute lingerie brand like that. They do so under Louis Vuitton, still kind of modern, still kind of fashion-y. So they actually have a bit of a market gap in a product like that. It is a, it is a crowded space, but it is an opening. And I think that 
something that they they like doing over there is always try new things. They're not afraid to spend money, and I applaud them for it at LVMH because you don't have it at the other groups just to try new things for a few years, and I like that. So that's what I think is going on right now. It's based upon the fact that there's residual positivity in the market towards the Daniel Roth brand and because there is this LVMH gap for a brand that is of that type. I, I do hope, though, that they bring the Endurer Chrono Sprint back because that's a cracking watch. If, 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 yeah, if I could appeal cool. for Daniel Roth to do anything to go backwards, it wouldn't be into the really high-end dress watch. It would be into that layer of sports I, well, watch. The thing is, is the, cool. the most recent ones are still Bulgari branded, so I think those are cool, but I, I think for what they're going for, I mean, th they're going for tourbillons, you know, $100,000-plus things. Only later might they go down. But brands like this do a much better job in the long run of starting very high-end and then after they've gained demand, coming into the lower price point. They're certainly not in a rush, and they can afford to take their time. We'll, we'll see how that goes. I mean, we, I was surprised when they brought back Chargent a couple of years ago, and it's basically the same watch that they used to make. And now it's the same watch that Daniel Roth used to make. And may maybe that's what the market wants. I'm, I'm not sure. I see this as an effort to just keep the whole thing, the brand name and the design and the know-how alive. And that's where it starts and that's where it ends for me. Daniel Roth, to me, is one of the hidden gems of the, the, the watch industry. Daniel Roth, I think, was born in like 1945 or something. He worked at AP. Then he worked at Breguet. He's the one who participated in the rebirth of Breguet in the early 80s. And I think he took his independence in the early 90s. This guy is like Philippe Dufour in some sense. They were the early, early people who left big manufacturers and said, you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing from now on. And if I remember, well, I'm not an expert on Daniel Rhodes, but uh, so he, he's from La Vallée du, close to AP, close to Dufour, all these guys. Um, he started by making a two-minute tourbillons that was COSC certified. And, and back then, this was just a mind-blowing thing. So I, I applaud the mentality. I applaud the passion. I, I, as he's probably close to being 80 years old today. I would love to see him being interviewed or maybe participate into the brand so that he could explain what he did and how he did it and, and maybe fuel some some passion into this uh, revival so for the first few years of daniel rose i would me as a watch enthusiast i would expect lvmh to show us that they understand appreciate the brand and maybe just copy paste the, the best models of, of the Rhodes legacy and after a few years the big question is then the following is how do you keep writing in this book that you didn't start writing yourself that's the big question as a designer this is where i get very interested because i'm very curious to see how these guys will interpret the the, the road legacy which is very unique very special and how they will bring it forward because that's where the real challenge is making good watches with an existing design is a matter of time and resources and lvmh doesn't lack in these domains but how do you yeah, make it last design-wise and, and brand in terms of brand equity? So it's going to be very interesting to follow. That is us for our show this week. Chat of the Wankel Engine Rotary Watch. We'll need to wait, so you'll just have to go and read all about the new Benrins Rotary 
at a blog to watch. Sylvan, what are you up to the next week? I know March is particularly busy. Yes, yes, yes. So we, um, I'm, I'm, I have to split my, my my brain in two. One part goes to preparing the or launch for Watches and Wonders, and the second part is keep developing new watches for for the rest of the year. So very, very busy, but all, overall extremely excited. Watches and Wonders is going to be super nice, and I can't wait to see you guys and see everybody. It's it's this one yeah. time of the year. Exactly. Yeah, looking forward to catching up with you. David, what's happening in the week ahead? Oh, on the week? Well, it's nuts. I have, I'm taking delivery of a watch for review. It's in a material that I've never reviewed before, and uh, I'm picking that up today from a boutique, so I really look forward to that. Are you allowed to give us a hint of what the material is? No, and that's the that's the <laughs> thing. I, I will I will take pictures and write a review, and then because it, it's so difficult to give a hint without giving all of it away. Okay. I, I think I think it's a good hint that that I've never reviewed something like that, and it's extremely rare that we on a blog torch review something in this material. I think that that's a strong hint. Okay, excellent, Ariel. You just recovering? Is that it? Recovery pack. Wash the clothes. Get the repack. Get away. Recording, I think, five podcasts this week, so a whole lot of content. <laughs> Got some fun watches that I've been looking at. I will be viewing the high watch making releases from Louis Vuitton next week, and that will be very interesting to see. And that's probably where I'll be hearing everything we need to hear about Daniel Roth, because it's the same people that make those. So we will return that conversation. I, if I'm lucky, I might see the first watch. Excellent. Well, do catch up with everything a blog to watch at the website and keep listening, uh, keep subscribing, liking, leaving comments, all that sort of stuff. Look out for the Discord channel and the chat later on this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Oh, Wankle. I wanted to talk about the Rotary Watch. I'm kidding. <laughs> I just wanted to say, oh, Wankle. You just wanted to say Wankle, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Uh, Goodbye. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a good one. Bye-bye. Ciao.